Film Drive is made possible by Audible, the world's largest selection of audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for a free 30-day trial and an audiobook of your choice, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on February 7th, 2015. My name is Zach. And I'm Andy. This is episode number 89, where we are discussing Lucio Fulci's 1984 spandex slasher film released by Roadshow Entertainment Murder Rock, which is also known under titles such as The Demon is Loose, Slash Dance, and Murder Rock Dancing Death. I like Slash, slash Dance. I like that name. Well, that sounds like it should. That should just be an entire subgenre: the slash dance movies. Yeah, but as far as I know, this is the only slash dance type of film, right? Can you think of another uh, slash dance inspired uh, horror film? No, I know there's a aerobic side or aerobic yeah, side. Yeah, but that's that's more of like the the workout one. That's mm-hmm. more workout subgenre. I like those, like Killer Workout, which I think is another name for aerobic side. But uh, Killer Workout, Death Spa, I like those. Uh, so this film's cast includes Olga Carlados, Ray Lovelock, Yana Ryan, and Claudio Casanelli. Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis? When a series of grisly murders at a New York dance academy baffled the police, academy director Candace Norman decides to take matters into her own hands and conduct an investigation to learn the identity of the unseen maniac killing women with a golden pet pen. Now, first thing I want to say before we get into anything else, I picked this movie. I was like, oh, we should do Murder Rock. And I had seen this movie in the past, and I just want to apologize because I remember liking the movie the first time I saw it. And I, so I just want to apologize. Oh, I you don't need to apologize. <laughs> I think there's things to appreciate here. <laughs> right. Uh, but, but I think this, this movie raises like an interesting question because – I think as genre fans know, like most of Lucio Fulci's films are historically known for being poorly scripted. Mm-hmm. And yeah. oftentimes he was working within very strict budget limitations. So I think sometimes with movies that fall privy to these uh, restrictions, it's it's hard to critically look at the work in a more traditional way that you would view something like Argento's Giallos, which he had a greater uh, amount of resources at his disposal compared to Fulci. So the question sort of is to begin this, like with a lot of genre films, you know, what, how, what is the best way to the best perspective to adopt when watching a movie like Murder Rock? I think in, for a film like Murder Rock, for me, entertainment value means more. Mm-hmm. And I also think uh, creativity means means actually a lot more. Because I, I do think even with limited budgets, limited resources, 
uh, I think those things actually can allow a director to be more creative with how they do things. And I think that might be a problem with Murder Rock, is I actually don't think... Uh, it's one of the more restrained Fulci efforts, I think. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, when you mentioned his bad, the bad scripting for his films, again, I think that allows you to... allows your creativity to kind of go wild, since the films are kind of inane and really don't make a lot of, whole lot of sense anyway. Since those aren't the important aspects of your film, you can kind of go a little more crazy with the things that you do on film. I read an article on um, Senses of Cinema that kind of frames Fulci outside the context of being a true filmmaker and more so attempts to see him as someone closer to H.P. Lovecraft. And that he's more of a, a sort of philosopher who accidentally became a filmmaker rather than a filmmaker who had something specific to say in his films. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. in a way I can actually kind of get behind that in that I do think that the fact that most of his horror films, if not all of them, I haven't seen all of them, so I don't know, are unconcerned with the the trajectory of a, of a character or of a plot. I, I think that's something to be considered as something that could have been very deliberately designed, not just in the scripting stage, but then when he's directing the film. Like when I think of a movie like The Beyond, yeah, the open-ended nature of that movie near the end makes the movie special. He seems to be someone, in my mind, when I think about his movies, that's more concerned with creating sort of a surreal landscape that just allows for certain events to occur. And it's it's less about, and he's just kind of moving through the the narrative evils because that's what he has to do when he's making a commercial film. I think you get that with The Beyond and City of the Living Dead and maybe even to a certain extent Zombie. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's true of, like, say, The New York Ripper or Murder Rock, for that instance, or even, like, Manhattan Baby, which, like I know I've told you, is more of a supernatural film. And I think there's elements where you can tie Manhattan Baby to say something like Beyond, The Beyond, but I don't think it is as, like, surreal as The Beyond is. Yeah, well, but that's, I, where but, would, that's where I would – that's where I'm – City of the Living Dead is just as surreal as the Beyond. Well, that's where I would agree with you is that, like, I don't think in the case of this movie, I, basically, I'm watching this. I it's called Murder Rock. I have a certain idea of the concessions that are going to have to be made when I go to watch this. Um, so I'm I'm kind of prepared to accept that the narrative is not right. going to be framed very well. So I'm more interested in just how is he crafting an atmosphere. And I guess sort of inflicting a feeling onto the audience. And that's where I don't think this movie really comes together. I, I don't know that Fulci ever has a, he comes to a clear decision regarding the aesthetic of the film. The opening, the New York City, like purple utopia magic hour. Yeah. And then these lyrics where it's like, be, believe in yourself. Like, it feels so good to be alive and like never give the, up the moment when it when it arrives or whatever. Tonight is your night to shine. Like, yeah, it's very ironic. And in that way, it's it's kind of brilliant. But that yeah, but, ironic personality like evaporates almost instantly. Well, yeah, I mean, this film has one has absolutely no sense of humor and I don't think a sense of irony to it. And that opening that you're 
talking about where we see kind of like that magic hour that really doesn't last very long because we are then cut to really this inane footage of these kids breakdancing to that same song mm-hmm. it's a moment that so takes you out of the very beginning of the film and it seems like it's such a part of something else completely i don't understand it at all the montage even... of the breakdancers yeah well yeah, it's I also mean, funny because breakdancing never factors into the movie no, these later. kids never, these, they're the only, ever, why, ever, I was going to say African American, but I mean Italian film, but it was made in America. African American films in, African American characters in the film. Well, there is the Margie character, the teacher. Uh, that's true, I read about her. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an odd moment that I don't know what he was doing. Don't and I actually think that's pretty, I think that's evident throughout the film that I don't know if he did know what he was doing on this movie. Yeah, well, I mean... For me, the biggest frustration is that it just has it has no rhythm. Like, Fulci's yeah. direction feels very trivial. And it's the longer the movie plays, the more disinterested the movie seems to become with itself. Oh, I agree completely, yeah. And some things that are interesting, like the whole film, I do think it has sort of a... Like, there is a certain degree of surrealism. Like, even the... the uh, the the dance academy these apartments there is this sort of antiseptic like sterile mm-hmm. texture yeah. that does and this i think is indicative of fulci like there is this sort of nihilistic aroma about everything that really makes it in this case difficult to enjoy watching the movie because it's not like i haven't seen new york ripper but from what i understand that movie is kind of um intentionally mean spirited and New York Ripper hates the world and hates yeah. everybody that lives there. I mean, it does. I mean, it's like, I think I, really, I think that's my favorite Fulci film just because of how mean-spirited it is. I mean, it is, no, ever, I mean, it's such a disgusting movie, really. Mm-hmm. And given the nature of this film's content, I'm surprised by how little it even attempts to embrace, like the flash dance roots. I mean, well, see, what's for me is that you get the flash dance with the one dancer dancing in that showers kind of scene oh, oh wait wait wait, wait the, the, the dance club scene yeah i wanted to yeah, mention I don't know what that. The hell that, is. that is by far the weirdest moment of the film because yeah we're, where is she we are in this dance club with this one dancer who she gets killed in the next scene after there afterwards but it's so jarring because he doesn't provide any context it just cuts from the school directly to this girl who you think she's still in the school well i i didn't even know who she was because she hasn't really been introduced into the story apart from what i'm assuming like there was an inserted close-up of her during that opening dance number but he doesn't establish the setting so you're just you have this like very surreal dance number located in what appeared to me to be like an italian restaurant passing for a nightclub and then they have a rain machine well, it's like why is it raining like i don't and if you go further i mean she's dancing in this rain machine she's obviously doing an erotic dance she never strips out of her clothes and but there's obviously male audience watching her that adds to my confusion is where what is she doing where is she at because this isn't a film that's that like shies away from nudity no but the only the only like uh justification the movie makes for that is later there's mention that the first two girls that are killed were also like moonlighting as prostitutes. Right. But, but that's not a prostitute like scenario. No. Like, I mean, so, uh, it's such an inane, bizarre moment 
And it's the most flash dance sequence in the movie. Because I would argue that the scene at the Academy at the beginning of the film where they're dancing to, what is it, Blame the Streets or whatever that was called? Yeah. Uh, that reminds me of uh, the opening dance number of uh, All That Jazz. Well, <laughs> well they, I mean, I'm not they are yet. dancing me and they're rehearsing, wrong, but that's but it. I, like, always I, mean, get, I always get the All That Jazz feel. And you know that kind of like the sexy dance number and all that jazz. But it's not anywhere. It's not choreographed. No, like no, a Bob Fosse that, number. That's what I always get in my mind is, uh, oh, there's some dance moves in there that are somewhat Fosse-esque. You know, some of the more uh, like sexual dance moves in that opening number. Um, that are where they're humping the sky. Yeah, 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 stuff like that. I mean, I'm not saying that Fosse would have done those, but I kind of Fosse is. Um, so I was kind of getting all of that jazz kind of thing from that. Uh, not not a flash dance, although, uh, like you said, I think uh, this film was supposedly to cash in on flash dance. Yeah, that's what Fulci has said in interviews, that he didn't want to make that movie. It was sort of imposed upon him by the producer, which is what the movie, how that how the movie plays, is it does feel like all the the flash dance material is imposed upon him, but he's also not interested in the 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 murder tale well, yeah i mean that's the other thing and in it being a giallo movie in my mind when i look at giallos i look at them from the perspective of where they came from and that they're they're films about serial thrills and the mm-hmm. anticipation of that and and that's what you know that's why you like the the familiarity of the narratives it's you're seeing you're trying to like you're watching how a filmmaker might concoct a new variation on the same formula. When he, he failed, I mean, one, this film has far too few kills. Essentially, we have our, our, the bulk of our kills happen in, like, what, the first 20 minutes, maybe? And then we have the conclu- conclusion, which is the last, like, 10 minutes. So we have an hour that's just plopped in the middle between that that really feels like Fulci had absolutely no desire to tell what was happening in this hour. It's bizarre... F- though for him to make for him someone like Fulci to make this movie because it is so contrary to how I understand him as a director because like we were talking about his movies are usually constructed with a certain degree of chaos yeah it is kind of almost that like Jess Franco thing where the films feel disjointed and almost like accidentally shaped yeah it's not that there isn't a vision but there isn't like a clear construction of scene by scene by scene the succession it's more like they just plop things because of how it felt rather than how it actually fits together so in that way those movies kind of feel almost alive in a way like they're in their unpredictability the whole problem with this murder mystery is that there is it is done with as like little sensationalism as possible and really, to me, what he only seems interested in exploring is the the dream sequence, Candace and her plight thing. But he's got 70% of another movie he has to contend with. So to me, the movie ended up feeling a lot like he just adopts like a Bay of Blood type of structure with fewer kills. But it's still that idea that like we're going to implicate more than one killer, even if that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, you have all these scenes where it's like, you know, it's like, why did that guy call the police station and say he was going to kill again? Like, what is the motivation? And the 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 excuse is, well, he's an actor. So he wants to be famous. (laughs) 
what? <laughs> I didn't, you know, and then there's another thing, the Margie thing, mm-hmm. where she goes to kill Candace. Now, I have a huge problem with that moment because, so at the end, spoilers for anybody that hasn't watched Murder Rock, it's probably everybody listening, but oh well. Uh, the The detective tells George that the thing that tipped him off was that Candace could describe the pin that the that killed the bird. Now, in the scene where Margie attempts to kill Candace, she has the same exact pin. The lion head pin? Yes. So then how would she know that that Happy was... Happy accident. I mean, that's just sloppy. I mean, just, get, just is, give her a different true. weapon. That like, is, if, you, if you know how the movie's going to end and what the detail is that tips her off, don't give her the same weapon then. That's ridiculous. Well, I even think the uh, the scene where they know it's Candace, other than the hat pin thing, but they know it's going to be a woman, I guess, is because of the, the paralyzed girl took the picture of the killer's jacket, and the detective flipped it over to notice that it's a woman's jacket because the button's the other way. I even thought that was kind of a lame way of doing it. Yeah, I uh, actually look, what, looked at that shot like three times, and I couldn't actually discern why what the tip i was looking if there was like maybe he could see like impressions that she had breasts or something like that the reason why i know this is because my wife's a costume designer (laughs) okay so that's how i know that women and men's clothing buttons different yeah and that's how i was able to pick that up when it's like oh the buttons are the wrong way how many people are watching this where their spouse the costume designer though uh (laughs) that i just think that's such a lame way to show that that I just have a hard time believing people are going to see that or notice that. Well, also, just why not a line of dialogue? It's a woman's jacket or something like that. Or, yeah, let's say he goes, look at the buttons. But I thought that, well, I mean, that same, uh, the detective's partner, where he records the conversation at the dance school. I I mean, the dance school, that never really comes up again. Well, they use it to trace the call, to connect the two. But that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's that's such a convenience that he decided to record that conversation as if yeah, I mean, something totally, important was going to yeah, happen. Yeah, I mean, nothing happens from it. And, I mean, we see, you know, the detective goes into that one room, and there's the room, and they're like, oh, this is where we do our voice analysis thing. And it really, other than that one, other than the, the phony call, it means nothing. Well, I'm, I'm sure that Giallo historians could, I mean, there is this thing that seems to run through a lot of Giallo that people make excuses for. It's that whole idea of the... um like the non-cartisan plotting, the irrationality of the plotting is enforced by the irrationality of the killer because you're slipping into their mind. And (laughs) that is one thing about this film that I find incredibly frustrating in that the reveal at the end, it feels so perfunctory in the sense that I would argue that of any character that we spend a significant amount of time with, we learn less through the the portions of Candace's part of the story than we do anybody else's. And I don't necessarily dislike the idea that she like schemes this entire thing as a way to get back at the man who ruined her life, but there's just no that feels that doesn't feel constructed in any way. Like I was watching the movie earlier on and I was trying to figure out Something that Fulci always does is his camera is constantly moving. 
And so I started to wonder is is he using zooms as a way to enter the psyche of a specific character? But then when he starts doing that with everybody, it just kind of becomes the the normal language of the movie. It's also just strange because it seems like in this case the way he uses the moving camera it's because there are so many scenes where people aren't they're just sitting or they're standing around so he feels like he has to create movement create so movement, it's like yeah. dialogue exchanges start in these like hitchcockian like wide shots where everyone's dwarfed and then it just descends into this dolly shot and then there's just zooms all over the place and then but then when he's in the dance numbers his camera is just like sitting there it's like yeah. i'll just watch we'll just sit here and show pelvic thrusts well i'll, I'll I... I'd argue that his use of lights during the murder scenes is the same thing. I mean, his murder scenes in this are relatively bland, but they're all accompanied by flashing lights. Yeah, well, I think um, maybe, and I might be giving him way too much credit, but I thought he used light in a way where it almost became a character within the movie. Because beyond just like the dance routine setting where there are going to be light sources everywhere, it's like, Light sources are present in every room of the movie. Like he's constantly filling backgrounds with light sources that you can see sitting there right in the frame. And I don't know if that's like him trying to like reveal the artificiality of everything in this world. But it it is interesting, at least to me, how like the way he uses light, it will alter the dimensions of the space that the character's in like that that locker room with the strobe lighting it shifts into something much more like claustrophobic and menacing the way that like there's a scene after the first murder where like everyone's in a hallway and normally i feel like filmmakers they're gonna adjust their lights to keep people evenly lit as they change camera positions he doesn't do that so the hallways will go from being like evenly lit to characters just becoming heavily silhouetted and it's very inconsistent but it creates something kind of interesting and then the urban environments there's a lot of transitioning characters will be like in tungsten balanced light and then they'll just move into fluorescent balanced light and then like the Candace's apartment thing is interesting because like hallways will look much shorter in one shot and then incredibly longer in another I just wish that that kind of thing was like more consistent because then it would like start to suggest that he's like trying to get at something. But I, I'm assuming that a lot of that is just because he was shooting on sound stages yeah, and he didn't have a lot of room to work. Because if you look at like all the apartment windows throughout the movie, they're all heavily diffused oh, so yeah. that you yeah. can't see the exterior mm-hmm. beyond the window. But it, it ends up just the whole movie looks very flat lit in my opinion even apart from just those things like there it's not a very um like it's not a very moody picture like i don't feel speaking of like the lights mm-hmm. and flashing lights in general what the hell were those flashing light things that the police always had how would that help you investigate a crime i don't remember that they were strobe lights every time the police would investigate a murder they had these giant strobe lights out are you sure they weren't they weren't were they not like uh, like lights from taking pictures? I, that's what I thought at first, but they don't correspond to when he actually takes this picture. When you watch his finger snap, they don't correspond with that. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. 
there's these giant strobe lights around. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I mean, like, the main detective is just standing by one of them. <laughs> What's he doing? Yeah, he's a, he's an interesting character. Oh, he's a horrible, he's a horrible detective. I, I, when you watch these films, though, you just, you can't help but kind of, like, giggle at some of the way that these guys, you know, investigate crime. And when he tells that one guy, I could break your arm if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> really? Or, like, the, the hiding of the evidence, you know, with the canary. Yeah. Well, oh, don't show anyone that. <laughs> you, know, you don't investigate crime like that. Well, I love the scene where he's with the administrator from the school, and he's just, like, digging his finger into his coffee cup the entire conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Doing. Maybe Fulci just wasn't directing him or what, but I feel so bad for that guy because he's just constantly trying to like give himself something to do. Like I remember in his introductory scenes, he's like constantly eating like sunflower seeds. Oh, oh yeah, that changes too. Because I mean, like there's another scene where he's eating like peanuts. It's like he was trying to find like a gimmick mm-hmm. for himself in this movie. Um, so I, wanna, I actually want to talk about this detective because uh, with the depiction of American culture, and I. Specifically, when we talk about the detective in this regard, it's like how I said, this movie came out, well, came out in 83. The detective in there, and like I mentioned to you when we were kind of talking about this on Facebook, he seems to me that he comes from a different era than what was the common detective, police officer, whatever, at that time period within America. As I was saying, there's Miami Vice, Magnum P.I., Beverly Hills Cop, To Live and Die in L.A. The way that the cops are in those are, are like, so different from the detective in this film, he seems like he comes from, like I mentioned earlier, like he comes from like 10 years earlier. And um, I thought that was interesting in that, in this regard... What about Matlock, Andy? Well, is Giallo simply a, a genre of film that has to work with that kind of detective, a dated 70s detective, or is it just that Fulci and the makers of Murder Rock were that far behind the time on the depiction of... Could a more stylish, modern detective have worked in Murder Rock, for instance? Like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Christopher George from Pieces. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you could tell he was in on the time. Yeah, he yeah, was yeah. in on But do you know what I mean? I mean... Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think the like the trench coat detective, that's a staple of, like, Fulci's movies. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think they are typically aloof. But then even when I think about, um, like, Stanley Baker... And lizard in a woman's skin. Yeah. There's a character who isn't treated like a like a comedic foil to the rest of the film. But these giallos do seem to hinge upon the fact that the police are inc- incapable of doing the work that needs to be done. Therefore, you have a, another character, whether it be like in Deep Red or the fact that the the reporter and Carl Malden like in Cat of Nine Tales like it requires or people or outside of that I mean, yeah, it's always, outside it's of that system to figure something yeah. out in this case it's the killer herself <laughs> like you know what i mean like, <laughs> i mean it's the, i mean i yeah i guess it is but to a certain extent i think the um, the down on his luck model kind of figures it out towards the end yeah, which is, uh... Here's, like, some of my problems with the movie, okay? Mm-hmm. How we're talking in this part with the killer herself, kind of, like, deci- deciphering who the killer is. <laughs> when uh, the guy from the agency calls her and says the reason why they can't use her 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 down-on-his-luck model boyfriend because uh, 
this young girl died, and she has the flashbacks of the, the guy at the Chinese restaurant calling him a murderer. Mm-hmm. I mean, she should know that she's the one that's murdering these people, but her kind of response to that is of fear, and that he's the guy that's actually murdering these dancers. Yeah, it, it just seems like I don't I don't get <laughs> what's going on with this character at this time. It's almost I, yeah, like was this guy supposed to be the killer? And then at the when they went to shoot the scene. So she was like, yeah, let's make her the killer. Let's go crazy. Or what? I, just some of her reactions should be different, I believe. See, the one thing that I thought was really interesting is, so the end of the film, <laughs> and it's just funny how it's phrased, but is uh, it ends with a quote from yeah. John, and it says John Houston instead of just saying John Houston, the asphalt jungle, which is what yeah. the movie. So it says, often crime is a distorted form of human endeavor. Well, I'll ask you, what did you make of that quote within no the context? I what the hell that's supposed to mean. Okay, all right. In regard to this movie. Well, I really tried to think, like, for a, a great deal of time about what Fulci might have been trying to say by placing that quote at the end of the film. Okay, yeah. And, I, I mean, I've seen The Asphalt Jum- Jungle quite a few times. I really like the movie. And I was trying to draw a comparison between the characters in that movie and what they're doing and what Candace does in this movie, because I feel like that quote is directly speaking to her character at the end of the movie. So, for instance, in Sterling Hayden's character in The Asphalt Jungle, his entire purpose for performing the heist is that so he can raise enough money to repurchase the ranch that he grew up on and raise horses there. The Sam Jaffe character wants enough money so he can flee to Mexico and spend the rest of his life Uh, with young girls acting out his sexual fantasies. So I suppose in that way, those characters are encouraged to do what they do because of some kind of dream that they want to see come true, even though it will never happen. And thinking about Candace, her entire scheme is about disallowing the dreams of other people to be fulfilled. She won't let the other girls receive what she was denied because of this motorcycle accident. Yeah. Which I would have liked to have seen in a flashback, by the way. I would have just been curious. Was she on a bike, too, or did he just uh, run into her? Two, just two. Um, it was also a hit and run. I don't know how she it was him, but... So her dream is the deconstruction of other people's dreams. Yeah. So that the use of that quote, I guess, is sort of ironically appropriate. Because, in a way, I guess she is the... If, if Candace exists in the asphalt jungle, the way I see it is then she is the, the opposition, the, the force that's ruining the lives of these other characters. But I guess the whole point is that it's, it's depicting how ambition can be distorted and become criminal. Yeah. But we're looking at, at, at her scheme as her ambition... I guess her ambition, her goal is to always to frame this guy. I don't, I don't well, know. I mean, yeah, so the other, then there's the subplot with the mystery man within her dream. Yeah. But that that's kind of interesting, too, because then there's that, um, there's, she then sees him on a billboard, and she sees him as, like, this very, uh, I think I read somewhere somebody compared him to, like, James Bond. He has, like, this sort of yeah. James Bond bil- image on the billboard. But then who he, what the life he's living in reality is in very, very different. Right, yeah. So yeah. I guess in that way, 
the movie is kind of it's it's become about presenting dreams to people as if they are a possibility and then taking them away from them. Which I mean even goes back to the reason why they're doing this one choreographed dance number at the beginning is because they're practicing, but only three people are going to be selected, but they don't know that yet. The students don't. Right. So, again, I mean, they're kind of being given this dream, but only three are actually going to get it. And then they really get it. Then they really get it. With a hat pin in th- their <clears throat> booby. Exactly. Now, one of the things that, that I that I do think is weird about all of this and with the dream man is um, Candace kills before she has her dream. And I thought the whole point of these murders was to frame the guy that destroyed her dream. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Because the movie stages that if she doesn't know who that man is until she sees him in the dream and then goes and looks for him. Yeah. So, yeah. She had already killed the two people because the dream happens after the death of the one that danced at that club. That's nonsensical. Yeah. I mean, unless it initially was just kill these girls so they don't get what I didn't get, and then it transforms into, well, I've I've found the person I can frame this on. Yeah. I mean, I think it would have worked had the, the director of the Academy murdered the first two girls since he was having the affair with the two of them. And then she kills the other people because she wants to frame all these deaths on this guy that ruined her life. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that's interesting about it, if it has sort of this, like, Bay of Blood idea where will implicate, kind of present all these scenarios that each person in this environment has a motivation for killing the person that was just killed, all the other ones make more sense than the the actual reality of who the killer is. Well, I would argue that the the model, I don't see what his reason would have been, though, because she's the one that she frames. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's absolutely, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, I mean, all the other people at the dance yeah, academy, yeah, yeah. they have better, uh, you know, motives for killing these girls than she does or he does. One thing I was, I was thinking about while watching this is that misogyny is something that gets almost brought up always when people talk about Fulci. Mm-hmm. I think Giallo in general. Yeah, but it seems especially with him because the New York Ripper being the penultimate example. Yeah. Yeah. But I actually, I was watching, I was thinking, if you really wanted to, you you could read Fulci in sort of a feminist way. One thing, and you'll probably agree with this, I do think people often make the mistake of if there's violence afflicted upon a woman, a woman that it's inherently misogynistic. Yeah, which I don't agree with. Yeah, and I think that's reactionary. And I, I mean, I think there's a lot of horror that can that can be applied to. Yeah, I mean, I would say I, you know, I recently watched Tenebrae again, which is film I still like, but I do think that kind of be. <laughs> yeah, well, like, Argento is. Yeah, he's. I mean, but he, I mean, I was reading stuff where he was he made this films to show a way that he was a misogynist. You know, I'm thinking I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. But I even think like the female revenge narrative can sometimes still become really misogynistic just because it's almost the male's fantasy version of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't think it's clear enough in this movie for it to really be – you could make like a great study on this. But I did think in a way maybe he was trying to depict various forms of repression that men in this environment are inflicting upon women. I, the thing that's interesting about when 
the the death of the killer at the end of the film is that it's very like anti cinematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When she dies, it isn't it isn't like a thrill. It's kind of like sad in some ways. So, and and I mean the movie isn't it's not thematically rich enough for it to feel like cathartic or even tragic. <laughs> but I don't feel like in in the case especially with all the murders, I don't know that Fulci's really fetishizing the violence in this film so much. I mean, you no, do I mean, have the pin breast piercing scenes, but those, you know, we talked about Cronenberg. Those feel to me almost like images out of a Cronenberg film. Yeah, I mean, they seem more um, uh, like medical than mm-hmm. anything else. And and that's normally like Fulci's violence is like so repulsive. It's like it's not even just. Well, the killer would be like cutting off the nipples. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like bodies aren't bleeding; they're like falling apart in chunks or something. Yeah. So he seems to kind of be denying the audience that pleasure, which I had read that some people surmised that that maybe might have been because of such the negative reaction that New York Ripper received and that he was labeled the sort of this misogynist that he was trying to then reel some of that stuff back in and not be so aggressive. Yeah. But um, but I but I think the ending, the so she dies and then you get this reaction from the detective and George. It's relief that we've stopped the killer, but more importantly, we're like we've like reclaimed our masculine power over this woman who's been deceiving us. Because really the the detective like he makes a lot of like disparaging comments about women throughout the movie. Like you mm-hmm. mentioned he said he says like it's a school full of sons of bitches. <laughs> You know? Yeah, he says it's cool assholes, doesn't he? Or is it sons of bitches? Yeah, and then he he also says like the killer might just be someone who hates dancers, and he says something like he has my heartfelt approval. Yeah, or, yeah, and um, there were some other ones too that he said that I can't recall what they are now. Yeah, I cannot think. What they he's are. like he talks about his wife. Yeah, it was like marriage. Oh, the thing with the marriage isn't it like you learn the hard way with the ladies or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. But then there's also that scene with the administrator and Candace where she says to him, like, Oh, you just think dancers like a bunch of sluts. And he says, you think I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That is, <laughs> yeah, that is a so there's all these like little things. And I, I don't know, maybe it's ridiculous to even like try to figure this out. Cause Fulci did make. So like some like very violent, against women films but there's even like a culture within the school that suggests that in order for the the girls to excel you have to sleep with the administrator now how much how much is of that is saying like Fulci or Argento's just personal attitudes or how much of do you think that's just the national attitude in Italy yeah I don't I don't know I don't know enough about like where women stand in Italian culture to typically when we think of the Italian male, it's, it is very macho, mm-hmm. and we do have a certain idea of, say, the power structure of men and women in, with Italy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know how much, maybe that's just the national... I mean, I guess the more feminist yeah. bent comes from, I guess you could look at it and how he characterizes the males in the movie mm-hmm. as being very sort of selfish, and then in the p- case of the police, like, aloof characters. Even the administrator, like, he feels threatened by Candace because there there there's like a power struggle going on there or something almost. I would argue that the the character that Fulci I think may 
most identify with is the crippled brother of the one dancer. Oh, you mean the sister? It's, a, it's no, a no, no, girl. not the not, not not the crippled girl that likes the insects. Oh, right, the, the one that's, that's only like is in the movie not cripple, and then suddenly in like one final scene is suddenly crippled. I'm like, I hear like crutches. What is going on? And then I see. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I don't know if he's got like a metal foot or what, but um, because <laughs> he doesn't have crutches. But he's the one that kind of the one surviving girl right before she gets killed. He for some reason just rips into her. Says something along the lines of, uh, you know, you, all you people are trash and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I found that thought that was so weird. That gets into like the whole American culture thing, in that Fulci is different from most, like the Giallo contemporaries, because most of his movies are taking place outside of Italy and continental Europe. Yeah. Lizard and the Woman Skid, that's the United Kingdom. The Beyond is the Louisiana Bayou. Sitting in the Living Dead is New England. Then House by the Cemetery, New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby, and Murder Rock are all within within New York City. New York City. So, therefore, like his giallo is kind of specific in depicting American culture from the perspective of someone who is not American. And the thing that I thought was interesting about this film is that I think he does apply like certain cultural cliches that come from being like a capitalist economy in a way. And and it's worth mentioning because Fulci always identified himself as a Marxist, which I think is kind of surprising given the content of his movies. I would think he'd be more of like just a like a Chuck Bronson Death Wish guy. It's like, (laughs) go out and get him, you know? Do we know if Fulci used to wear his sister's dresses? (laughs) What, when he was down in the coal mines? Coal mines. Um, but it's like the entire premise of the movie until the reveal of the killer is it, it all seems to be inspired by this kind of like get ahead, do whatever it takes, take no prisoners mentality. And so like the dance Academy kind of gets designed as like this very, um, brutalistic, almost militant atmosphere. Like there's that speech that Candace gives after well, Candace uh, does. Yeah, and then we have the dancers and they're crying. Yeah, right. But they're dancing, they're crying. It's like almost like a football locker room speech. Yeah. And it's like all about how you know, your ability to dance should come before the value of a human life or something. Yeah, your friends are dead. So what? You got to keep dancing. So, from what I know about New York Ripper, it almost seems like Fulci sees America as like a a place that just lacks an overall empathy, like in general for things. Yeah. I wonder if that's like him, like looking at the Reagan administration or something, because that is a mentality that at least in eighties films, you don't see in very many American yeah. movies. Yeah. We talked about that before. Those the movie, American movies of this period, like they idealize the, the current state of affairs. And instead, he's like he's almost depicting the United States, even just like the locations that he chooses to shoot the exteriors in, which I think is all in Manhattan. But it's almost like America has become like this decayed ruin or something. Well, I yeah, I definitely get that with um, what's the model's name? Greg? Did he say George? George. His rooming house right next door to it is where the Broadway production of Dreamgirls is being done. And just the idea of having the glitzy neon sign that says Dream Girls next to this boarding out home. I think even shows that kind of uh, 
the juxtaposition of of the ultra wealthy and everyone else. Mm-hmm. Well, even with just with his character, like it was mentioned earlier, like this perception of being like a movie star or something, and then the reality that he's really living in. So that even goes back to what we were talking about before, like the idea of like selling people on dreams and that not really being the the reality or whatever that they're going to be confronted with. So maybe Fulci, because uh, I mean, you've seen New York Ripper, you've seen Manhattan Baby, like do those kinds of, I know New York Ripper is like a really nihilist film. Mm-hmm. Like, do you get the impression that he just really like, he has a lot of contempt for like American culture or something like that? I can see that New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby, I don't see that as much in, but I, maybe I have to see that again with, with that in mind. And maybe that'll tell me more. Um, but I can definitely see that with New York Ripper. Because even when I think about the beyond and like the way that movie begins, like I kind of feel like he he's sort of picking at like the the violent cliche of like of the South in a way too. Yeah, like, but in a way, I mean the American South is easy. I mean, we pick on the American right, South. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So that's easy to get, that everyone kind of beats up on. Maybe he had more blown in Murder Rock than we thought. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe he just made a boring movie. I don't know. Oh, and the other thing, too. So in that first locker room death scene, the female dancer opens her locker and she kisses yeah. a Mickey Mouse stuffed animal. And I know there's the Donald Duck thing in New York Ripper. So I yeah. wondered, yeah. were like Disney characters in a lot of his movies? I can only think of those, those two. two instances. Yeah, I can only think of those two instances. I wondered and if there was the one in Man- Manhattan Baby, because then that I don't would remember. Be like... You know, I don't remember, though, but Christ, I mean, there are kids in that, so it's about a New York family that lives in Manhattan, and there's kids involved, so maybe there's something in one of the rooms that I just didn't pick up on, because I didn't really think of it at the time. But yeah, you're right. She does kiss the little Mickey Mouse thing, which I, always, which I thought was a weird scene. Mm-hmm. And I, who in the right mind when doing security for a school would have the last 15 minutes of their lights flash on and off like that. <laughs> the goofiest thing I've ever seen. Well, it's also like that kind of whole setup is just kind of frustrating because the movie doesn't, it doesn't establish that it's more than just a dance school. You know what I mean? Yeah. It apparently is. It apparently is like a, it's an arts an art living school. center. Yeah, whatever the hell that. <laughs> but, I could see somebody watching this and just thinking, like, this dance school is literally the people that we just saw. You know, why would they need this elaborate, like, sort of, like, warning that the school is going to be closing? And all the doors will electronically lock. Yeah, it's even just the the ludicrousness of that voiceover. But that goes back to, I guess, what I was saying before, that it's this does feel like almost like a military base or something. Mm-hmm. In a way. Like, yeah. It's very bizarre. The whole film I'm, I was watching this, you know, I didn't grow up in the 80s or anything, so I'm not sure. But I was wondering about the reality of a dance academy teaching street dancing with the same kind of, like, rigorous dedication as ballet dancers train. I don't think they would have had the street dancing there at the time. I think street dancing, break dancing things, like, that would have been still new enough mm-hmm. that they would have been teaching in, those, uh, in a school that whatever that school is supposed to be like. Yeah, so there's like a certain absurdity in that. I'm not I'm not 100 for certain that those kids break dancing during the opening credits were students at that school. I don't know what the hell they were. No, you were just getting a taste of the nightlife. Yeah, I mean, 
I'm not even for certain why he did it. It was their night to shine, Andy. Yeah, that's true. I don't get what did like an assist, like a second unit director that's say. That's probably hey, what it is. Yeah. Hey, Lucio, look at this stuff that I got. Isn't this awesome? And he's like, this stuff is cool. We should have made this movie instead. Just throw it in somewhere. I don't care where or what. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. The Harder They Fall, a film by Lucio Fulci. <laughs> His would have been breaking. Oh, yeah. Well, you no, have... breaking two, busting loose, right? Yeah, breaking two electric boogaloo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, where does he stand amongst his Italian contemporaries? Well, where do you think he's saying himself? Well, I, I guess that's more of like a, that's a personal. Yeah, that's a personal thing, but yeah, I'm kind of. Uh, well, I think like the natural instinct is just to pit Fulci against Argento. Yeah. And I think that's kind of superficial. To me, their comparisons come down to common trends that were within that genre anyway. Like yes. the, the soundtracks the bad dubbing, the the way that violence kind of uh, aggressed over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Argento is probably the better filmmaker yes. in a technical sense. Yeah. But person, I kind of enjoy Fulci's, at least Fulci's better films more, just because I think he's a director that becomes more about rhythm and just sort of exaggeration, not just with the camera, but just how over blown the stories become that they just kind of implode within themselves and then you don't really know what's going on and i think in that way his films are like a little more unnerving i actually think when i think about that i think he's more similar to mario bava just that i think fulci has more like gothic roots than argento yeah, I agree does with i agree with that with the idea of gothic root. And, and um and in the terms of like the beyond in City of the Living Do- Dead, he's kind of got like this apocalyptic circular <laughs> endings to his film mm-hmm. that uh, <clears throat> kind of give them just kind of this heightened sense of weirdness that I enjoy. But when I think of like Bavo's like 60 out- 60s output, the Kill Baby Kills, the uh, yeah. Five Dolls of the August Moon, to me, those are movies that kind of abandon logic in the same way that Fulci does. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of becomes about tonal nightmare where it's just like you were reading that quote beforehand, just talking about just viewing horror as I'm a person experiencing this nightmare and just making a film kind of designed around that ideology. And, and the other thing that is comparable about them too, both too, cause I don't know that people bring this, this up with Fulci too much, but Fulci like worked in every genre. Yeah. Oh yeah. And a lot of like people that are like Fulci historians claim that they think like him working in horror kind of ruined the trajectory of his career in a way. Well, I think it was uh, zombie that I think is arguable that ruined his career, if anything. Because his early giallis are giallos are quite lizard, don't torture, duckling. Like those are more, I guess. uh, Seven Black Notes is one of those. Oh yeah, fights the psychic. Yeah, like those are I guess more artistically. To the critical eye, I guess, like yeah. worthwhile than the stuff he did in the eighties. The the interesting thing about Murder Rock is it comes out the same year that he like makes a sword and sorcery movie and a science fiction film. So it seemed like at that time he was trying to reestablish himself as sort of like an experimenter with genre. But I also know that he was really sick at this time as well. 
because I think this is when he got diabetes or something and he started to have a hard time because the films he makes after this, like his directing duties become really irregular. Like he's working as like a special effects supervisor on movies and stuff like that. Well, what's interesting with Murder Rock, Murder Rock is his first movie after his partnership. And this is a partnership that dates back to uh, Seven Black Notes, I think. First movie where uh, Dardano Secchi, I think is how you say his name, mm-hmm. didn't write his film. Now, Contraband wasn't written by him, and that's not Contraband, I'm sorry. Uh, Conquest wasn't written by him, and that's where the falling out happened, from what I understand. But like pretty much all of his films from that through the New Gladiators were for him, written by him, and Murder Rock is the first one where that's the end of the partnership. I also think Murder Rock might be one of the first films that he didn't work with like a regular cinematographer either. I think he might have switched uh, cinem- cinematographers for some reason as well, which could explain why that movie looks the way that it does. Yeah. Well, I know the um, the breakup with the screenwriter was over Conquest, which was, I guess, his first bigger budget movie in a while. And he didn't bring him on as the writer. He hired someone else to write it. And I guess that guy got mad thinking that Conquest was going to be a hit and that he was going to be left out from that. And that obviously didn't happen. But that ruined their friendship from what I understand. Now, what about Fulci in relationship to, like, Sergio Martino or, like, Umberto Lenzi? Like, do you think he's... Well, I like Sergio Martino. I do, too, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I think... um, But what I was going to say about the Sergio Martino, if we're talking the the giallo of Don't Torture a Duckling, I can see a comparison. But if we're talking uh, how uh, New York Ripper, I don't see the comparisons. Because I think Sergio Martino's, for me, I mean, there is an element of sleaze to his films. Don't get me wrong. But I also think there's an element of, like, elegance to it, if that makes sense. Or at least they're really well made, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe elegance was the I, I think word, his but... plots are sometimes just as stupid, but yeah. Yeah, I but I think they're well made. And um, so comparing them to, I guess, the trashier Polish films, I really don't... I can't get behind, but the earlier ones I can. That's, um, but that's kind of what I like about Fulci, too, is, like, he seems to have, like, he doesn't care that he has sort of, like, nasty tastes in a way. Like No, I agree. I agree. That's one thing with, I think sometimes Argento can come off as a bit hypocritical mm-hmm. in that he doesn't really want to just ad- admit up front to, like, the stuff that he's doing, whereas I, I don't think Fulci had no shame, I guess, in that way. Yeah. I sometimes think like the Argento Fulci thing is unfair because Mm -hmm. as we mentioned, Argento was, you know, the prince of the genre. Like he had all the resources that he needed to make the movies that he wanted to make. Whereas I see Fulci more aligned with the Lenzies, the Martinos, the more workmen like Mm -hmm. filmmakers. And in that regard, even like Mario Bava. Yeah. Because he really, other than what, Black Sunday, he never really had the uh, option of... No, I mean, now Bava now is placed on this pedestal almost above Argento, but... Oh, yeah, I think... I think now, I think you see that with Bava, uh, I think because he has the seal of approval from, like, say, Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. That Even though, like, Scorsese may like Argento, I don't know, but Scorsese in interviews has mentioned his appreciation and love of Bava. So that kind of gives it like a seal of approval. Like, oh, okay, it's okay to like him, even if you're not necessarily a horror fan, let's say. Now, what if the film didn't... Same story, yeah. but they didn't do it with the mystery angle. 
the whole time we knew it was her and we knew what her plot was to frame the guy that did this to her. I mean, do you think the film would have worked better? Because I think some of the problem is the fact that it's trying to be a mystery. When I just, uh, yeah, and I don't think the movie's navigating it very well. Like, it's just, it's picking up things when it has to. It's like, it's not a well sort of oiled machine in that way. Yeah, probably. It probably yeah, would have, if we just. That was telling her process of doing it. Because then it's interesting too, because it's like, so say we, in that first kill, we see her, we see who the killer is. And then the movie kind of leaves her for a while. And then it's kind of like, why'd she do that? You know, like there's this yeah. whole, then it, it builds a whole other mystery, I guess, into it. And then the movie could kind of like slowly peel back that onion. And it also would have prevented us from having the, the false murder with that the, uh, I guess, Marsha, is her name? Margie, yeah. Margie, Margie would have, uh, I'm horrible at these names, but Margie would have when she attempted to murder Candace. Yeah, that that's that seems the worst. One of the problems with that scene is there has to be some sort of repercussion for her for attempting to murder anyone, and that would have done something to the murder case. And that's where my pro- one of my problems with that scene is, is there should have been something more there, and it's just dropped completely. We never see the character again. The only reason why it exists is so that you cast doubt on Candace being the killer, right. which you're not even thinking about anyway at that point in no. the film. They give you no reason to think that she's the murderer. Right. And then also, if we eliminate the mystery and we know immediately that Candace murdered them, or at least murdered the first girl, that wouldn't make her looking for uh, George kind of so unusual. Because... There is a part of it where it's like, who cares? Who cares about this George guy? Because we haven't spent enough time with her to care about her relationship with George building. Now, the minute that she, Candace, brought up the fact that there was a guy that hit her with a motorcycle and ended her dancing career, did you know it was him? I did. I, re- I do remember that, that. I immediately knew it was him. But also, I mean, this guy has... A relationship with the other girl at the dance academy. Which made no sense to me that he would have... And because you're implying now that he's uh, a pedophile. And then the agency that calls... See, I don't understand why, if if she wanted to frame this guy to begin with, why did she try to get him a job through this agency? Played by Lucio Fulci. Did you know that? That was him? No, I didn't know that, actually. I didn't even know. You know, why would she have done that? She could have lied and said that she did it, but we see her receive the phone call from the agency. Well, it's almost like she's forgetting her own plan. <laughs> that, it does seem like that. She has to be reminded, like, oh, that's right, I'm trying to frame this guy. He's the one that run me, ran me over. Okay, I forgot. Yeah, none of this makes sense. Because really, she can already get into his, his, his room at the boarding house. That's already been established. She doesn't actually have to meet him. So she can still frame him and never have met him. I think the problem is, too, that Everything involving her in that whole thing is treated from a completely like objective point of view. So it plays as if like when she discovers the chloroform in the drawer, like, oh, my God, the idea is supposed to kind of be that she's like she can't even get outside of her own head or something. But there's nothing like in the way that the movie visually tells the story that that would suggest that there's something mentally wrong with her. Like it treats everything as like a complete honest expression 
I don't think that that's really like the the way that the structure of the movie exists. I, I don't feel like that's fair because she's too much at the forefront. See, that's like where I say like think of lizard and a woman's skin. Like Florinda Bulkin's character, she's not sure if she did what she did. Yeah, but that doubt is still there. You know what I mean? Like she's still questioning that. This character's never questioning questioning it. And when she's cornered at the end, she is completely coherent when she tells. Georgia Plank. Right. So it's not like she's like, well, what? I killed these people. What are you talking about? No, she's like, I did it because I wanted to frame you. But it's also, she also plays like the, the lockdown music thing, like completely mm-hmm. terrified as well. Like when they, when he's showing her, that's the other thing. How does this guy know how to use a control booth? Like, oh, he got, he got to operate the whole thing. He knew where to, what cameras to cut to he and everything. Tape to put in. <laughs> Because it was the tape from the very first thing, and we, you know, from the very first opening dance number, and we've seen since then that the director was watching other dance numbers, mm-hmm. so he had to pull that tape out and watch it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I just don't understand what the hell's going on. But I think you're right. I think sometimes she just forgot what she was doing. Well, it's even just his reaction to looking in the drawer, seeing the chloroform. It's like, oh my god! It's like it's played as a reaction where she thinks I'm the killer. I need to go find her and stop her. Right. Yeah. But instead, it's, oh, my God, now I know she's the killer. But it doesn't, like, that performance doesn't indicate it doesn't that re- at all. Yeah, it doesn't indicate that. But he, the first person he went to was uh, the detective to tell him. She goes, right? She goes, too, but he does as well. Oh, he but does? We never, see, you know, we never see him go. We don't find that out until later. Oh. And let's talk about the, the, the crippled girl with the insects. Uh-huh. She is the most Fulci-like character in the entire movie. Uh-huh. You know, he always had to have some sort of weird kid. Well, a lot of giallos always have to have a weird disabled person, too. It mm-hmm. seems yeah. like. Or a character has to be gay or something like that. Yeah, but there's no reason for her to be crippled, this little girl. <laughs> no reason for her to be paralyzed. No, she needs to be crippled, so she takes the picture of the chest that figures out that the buttons uh, are mismatched. Oh, and that's it's a why she has, okay. Which, by the way, I don't want to nitpick too bad. That photograph... It would be impossible to get that photograph from the angle that no, she was like, shooting the picture. She would have had to have been right next to him. Yeah, like, she, right in, front in front of him. him. Absolutely. It makes no sense. No, yeah, it didn't. I was, that, and that's like laziness to me. Yeah. And then there's the whole thing like where they've been interrogating the little girl for like six hours <laughs> and she won't tell them. Yeah. <laughs> now, the one bit of humor that I did like was when they're looking through the slides and it cuts to that little kid and mm-hmm. he's like... Our killer's a little young or something like that. I did laugh yeah, at that. Yeah. But. And his partner's something else. The whole character design of the partner. With the glasses? He's always and fidgeting he with the glasses. And he calls him Professor? Yeah. What, what is this guy? This is it. This is So that's our show for this week. Please be sure to tune in next episode when we discuss Vincent Gallo's 1998 film Buffalo 66, co-starring Christina Ricci, Ben Gazzara, and Angelica Houston. 
If you'd like to share your thoughts on Buffalo 66 or respond with any general feedback, you can send an email to filmjive at gmail.com. And be sure to stay in touch with us by following Film Jive on Google+, Stitcher Radio, and subscribing to our iTunes feed. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep on jiving. Just like this.